It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Free at last, the 33 miners trapped in the mine in Chile are alive and above ground. But what will it mean for South America politically? China's Central Committee are meeting in the next few days. Is openness the key item on their agenda? And with all the allegations of currency manipulation flying around, what will be said at the G20 finance ministers' meeting? You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. I'm joined in the studio by Richard McGregor, our former Beijing bureau chief, by John Paul Rathbone, our Latin America editor, and by Chris Giles, our economics editor. John Paul, let's start with you and with Chile. It was, a, as everyone said, a transfixing story, a kind of rare good news story. Will it have a lasting effect on Chile as a country, do you think? It's given a little boost to uh, President Sebastian Piñera, who uh, took office uh, this year in the middle of an earthquake. And it fits his slogan for Chile, that Chile does things well. He was a, it was a remarkable technical feat, and everyone got out alive, and it was, a, as you said, it was a happy ending. Uh, and so he's, he can be a bullion and, and boast and celebrate about how Chile managed to, to extract these miners from their trap uh, half a mile under the, under the surface of the earth. I mean, as an outsider, as a foreigner, I was struck, though, by how the miners coming up and the people who'd been sort of, you know, their families and their supporters didn't seem to turn on the government at all. I mean, I think if you, know, you had a similar disaster here in Britain or in Europe, people would have said, well, how could this have happened in the first place? There must have been some failure of uh, safety or law. That doesn't seem to be the Chile. It seems to be 100% good for the government, This, this uh, the way they've handled this. I suppose it's because the government's just come in, so they can't naturally take the blame for conditions that pertain to the previous government. Um, but the, the safety regulator has been fired and some of the families of the miners have launched a suit uh, about that. But what it has, it was very striking at the, head, the wellhead of the mine. You, you saw all these miners um, being, leaping into the, the arms of their families, evidently modest, as the, as the rather sort of richer Chilean uh, mining executives, the, uh, the billionaire president himself, are watching on. So it has highlight um, some of the discrepancies uh, that remain even in South America's best managed economy. If you say Chile is South America's best managed economy, I mean, do you think this kind of thing uh, would have been done as successfully in in a, in a neighbouring country? I mean, mining's a big industry all across Latin America. As you say, the slogan is Chile does things well. Would were they these guys in a weird way lucky to be trapped underground in Chile rather than in a, in a neighbouring country? Well, Chile does things well. It's a rather sort of modest uh, slogan uh, until you sort of consider the opposite, which is doing things badly. And uh, you can definitely think of examples in South America where that's the case. There's also the, the discrepancy between the, the formal sector in mining and the informal sector. And this, is, this wasn't an informal mine, but it wasn't one of the, the big multinational projects or even one of the big state-owned projects. It was a half-half uh, sort of mine. And as commodity prices have gone up, so miners have gone down and they'll be taking more risks of this kind of thought all, all over the world. So a happy ending this time, but possibly more disasters to, to come, as, as, as you say, because people are going to take bigger risks to get commodities out of the ground. You'd have thought. I mean, this is a 19th century accident, a, a mine collapse, but it was brought to a happy conclusion using 
21st century techniques and drilling technology. John Paul Rathburn, thank you very much indeed. And now to China, where the Politburo is meeting against an interesting political background, a certain amount of uh, backlash, certainly in government circles, against the award of a Nobel Peace Prize to a Chinese dissident, but also some discussion about whether this is now the time for political reform. Richard McGregor, uh, our former Beijing bureau chief, it does seem like there are trends pushing in different directions, but that the conversation, the political conversation, is unusually open. Uh, is, is that right? Well, China is so opaque, it's always difficult to draw concrete conclusions. But if you look at what's been happening, um, uh, a, a number of leaders, most most uh, particularly Wen Jiabao, the premier, basically number two in the country, has been talking in a very public fashion about the need for China to have democracy. Now, of course, it may mean that uh, the meaning of democracy in China could be something else altogether. Officially, democracy in China is under the leadership of the Communist Party, but it's still a very sensitive word and used to be, when the internet was founded in China, a banned word because it was so sensitive. And uh, in response to that, some of the party papers have kicked back a little bit against people over-interpreting this, whereas some liberal papers have applauded him. So right now, we've got the Politburo and the broader Central Committee having their uh, annual plenum, annual meeting. Some big leadership changes are in uh, in train. Uh, and against that background, I th- you know, one does sense the issue of political reform bubbling to the surface. What do you think Wen's up to? Because, as you say, if this was once a banned word, he won't be using it by accident. Well, that's right. I mean, there are some people who claim, as uh, somebody said, it's an all-spin operation just to mollify people like us in the West who like to think that China is becoming more like us um, when it's, in fact, not. Uh, Wen himself has always been on the liberal wing of the party, and he's only got another two years or so uh, left in office. He may start to worry about his legacy and about the need for this to be pushed, and the only way to push it forward is to talk about it in public. And we've seen in the past that, uh, obviously, the Chinese Communist Party, whatever face it presents to the world, is not monolithic. But in previous occasions, when they've argued in public, so to speak, that has led to real trouble. I mean, there was a, it was the background to Tiananmen Square, wasn't it? That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, being in the party allows you to disagree, but it allows you to disagree in private. And it's absolutely been a cardinal principle since 1989 that you do not, there are no public splits at the top of the party because that allows people below you to run off on their own campaigns. And so I don't think we can say we're seeing a definite public split, but we perhaps are seeing some airings of uh, tensions over what direction the country should take. Now, if they were to open up, what kind of thing would we be talking about? Very obvious things, a more liberal press? or I think we'd be talking about a more liberal press, perhaps slightly a slightly more independent court system uh, in some areas, not in the criminal law. Um, uh, we'd be talking about perhaps a greater, uh, mecha- a more improved mechanisms for public scrutiny of officials uh, in a transparency in government and the like. We're not talking about a swift move to Western-style democracy. Meanwhile, there are, there are two events which... Uh the newspapers picked up on, our newspapers picked up on, uh, there was this, could one call it a petition, an open letter by Chinese elders talking about the need for a kind of more open political system and then, of course, the award of the Nobel Peace Prize to, to Liu Xiaobo. How did those play into the debate? Well, I think it, it's the the awarding the Nobel Peace Prize that's elevated this in some respects because obviously China absolutely hates that. 
Uh, most people in China, of course, have never really heard of uh, Liu Xiaobo, but they, and the Communist Party at a time like this has to act to ensure that they don't by suppressing it. But they still consider it an affront, but they play the affront up, actually, because that appeals to the population. Um, the dissenters who came out with a the letter, they're more dissenters than dissidents. They're elderly party members, which gives them some protection. Uh, they're not people who can move the debate by themselves. But in the context of the Peace Prize and the debate we were just talking about, uh, you know, it, it, it elevates the issue just, uh, just another notch. Richard McGregor, thank you very much. Now, there's another issue that China's absolutely at the centre of, which is the rows about global currencies, talk even of currency wars. I'm with uh, Chris Giles, our economics editor. Chris, there's this phrase that people are chucking around, currency wars. In fact, I see somebody has The Economist lying on our uh, table here, which has it on the cover. But what do they actually mean by a currency war? Well, it isn't uh, it isn't fisticuffs yet, but it, it is very much the the sense that in a fragile global recovery, every country is seeking to boost its own economy by promoting exports or suppressing imports. So that net trade will be the big driver of growth because they often don't see that uh, internal demand is going to do it. That's true for the US, for Europe, for China, for Japan. There's almost no country in the world that doesn't want to see uh, exports driving growth. And uh, if, if you want to have that, you want probably a more competitive or a lower exchange rate. But of course, not two exchange rates are exchange rates against each other. So everyone can't have a low exchange rate simultaneously. But it seems like it's a real comeback of what I thought was a discredited economic philosophy, which is mercantilism, the idea that, you know, you can only grow by exporting. And if you have a trade deficit, well, that's a big problem. Weren't we taught over the last 20 years that one shouldn't be thinking like that? Well, I think we were. But I think I think you have to distinguish between uh, different sorts of countries. Now, the, if we to characterise the global economy, is that there's huge global imbalances. So are there big surplus countries, China particularly, uh, but Japan, Germany, oil exporting countries, and there's big deficit countries, the US. And we know that if you have surpluses or deficits in your trade account, that means there's big capital flows around the world to pay for these or to, 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 to borrow and to lend to these countries that have deficits. And we know that part of the crisis was that these capital, these flows of capital which went into the US then got spent or got lent out very badly and went into the, into the mortgage market and uh, built up the housing bubble. So if we want to have a stable global economy, it is almost certain, well, it is certain, that we would want to have much lower, smaller imbalances in the future in which case you would expect the deficit countries to have net trade growing and become a little bit more mercantilist and the surplus countries to do uh, do the reverse. So, now, to, so, so to summarise, imbalances, inevitable, not bad, but if the imbalances get too, too big, you've got a big problem. Because of the flows of capital that they imply. Right. And at the moment, obviously, the US is t- very worked up about China's uh, currency and its deliberate undervaluation of it. I mean, it does seem to me that the Chinese are both diplomatically and, if you like, intellectually vulnerable in the sense that they are the only big trading company, which trading country, that uh, doesn't have a freely floating currency. Yes, they are. They, they're certainly intellectually vulnerable. But then again, uh, they don't necessar- that doesn't necessarily translate into isolation in the, in the global economy because America's actions or their retaliation, which might well be to flood the US with 
newly minted cash, which will then fly out of the US, well, that's not really necessarily going to fly to China because China can sterilise it, what's known as sterilising it, whereas other countries which don't have the same controls over capital find that much more difficult. So they are very, they're joining China and being very upset with the US and Brazil, other emerging markets are all seeing their currencies rising very quickly. And Europe as well. We we had a senior European policymaker in the building yesterday who, who was describing the Americans' actions as irresponsible. Now, that's not the sort of language you normally hear uh, about friends in central banking. So to summarise, going into the G20, there is this big international argument going on about currency wars, with I guess the US at one pole, China at the other, and... Uh, both countries trying to rally support for their positions. How will it come out in the end? Well, at the moment, we have to understand that we've got the finance ministers meeting uh, next week, at the end of next week, and uh, and then the leaders' summit in early November. And we've just had the International Monetary Fund annual meetings. So we are at this moment in a bit of a negotiating. We know people are setting out their negotiating positions, and this is why it's so difficult and people seem so polarised. I would expect things to get better by the time of the G20 summit, but that's nearly a month away. And so in between now and then, we can have a lot more skirmishes in this war because there's a hell of a lot of negotiation. doesn't mean that things are going to get settled because countries genuinely disagree, but I think some of the heat will come out of it by the time of the summit. You mean they'll have to find a way to manage it because I guess if they don't, the consequences are we're talking about a breakdown in the global trading system. Absolutely. And I think we, we, won't, we won't get a solution, but we'll get a, a big tone down of the rhetoric because uh, the rhetoric at the moment is in, at levels which are pretty extreme. Chris Giles, thank you very much indeed. And thank you also to John Paul Rathbone and to Richard McGregor, who also joined me here in the studio. That's it for this week. Join us again next week. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.